Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Picking up where the previous episode left off, it's November 1990 and we finally have low-cost Macintoshes. Never mind that the classic is seven-year-old technology, that a 16-bit data path makes the Macintosh LC as fast as a tortoise, or that the low-cost 2SI still costs $3,800 for a bare system, we now have low-cost Macs. The future looks bright, and Apple's problems are over, right? Well, maybe not. We're going to take a good hard look at the beginning of Apple's long slide downhill in the 1990s, from which it almost did not recover. If you don't like hearing negative things about Apple, this episode is not for you. But for once, the author involved is not your average dollars and cents business journalist. This piece was written by Cheryl England, who knows and loves Apple. Cheryl England may be better known to you as the founder of Mac Addict magazine. A lot of people told us we were really crazy for starting this magazine. A lot of people said, well, you know, good luck. And there's a lot of people out there saying, oh, the Mac is dead. Are you crazy? Face up to reality. Apple is dead. Um, we certainly don't think so. We love the Mac and we think PCs and Windows suck. Um, if that offends you, this is not your magazine. Macworld Magazine, September 1991, by Cheryl England. That vision thing. Low-cost Macs have transformed Apple. For the better? The three Macintosh computers Apple introduced last October, the Classic, the LC, and the 2SI, didn't seem that special. They ran the same system software and applications as previous Macintoshes, but there was a difference. Price. The trio has had mixed success as a group, but up to March, the Classic was selling 100,000 units a month. In the six months after Apple introduced the low-cost Macs, U.S. market share more than doubled, rising to almost 20%. And price-sensitive foreign markets, such as those in Asia and South America, expanded. Revenues, too, continue to grow. By the end of March, worldwide revenues were up 19% from the same quarter a year ago. With total sales of $5.6 billion, Apple is still the largest personal computer company ahead of IBM, Compaq, and Tandy. Apple has a strong balance sheet, with lots of cash and virtually no debt. The bad news is that profitability is sharply down, and operating costs are up. As a result, Apple underwent a large-scale reorganization in the first half of 1991, which resulted in its first significant round of layoffs since 1985. Up to 10% employees, of its worldwide workforce is expected to be cut. To further reduce operating expenses, the company also consolidated its five U.S. regional sales divisions into three units, eliminating regional headquarters in San Jose, California, and Chicago, and made plans to move some departments out of leased buildings in Cupertino, California, to lower-cost areas in other parts of the western United States. Apple USA was reorganized for the fifth time in as many years. Even engineering and advanced technology staffs are facing cuts, and development projects are being squashed. Morale is plummeting, and many people, both inside and outside Apple, are questioning whether CEO and Chairman John Scully has the savvy to lead Apple into the next decade. See sidebar entitled, The $16.7 Million Man. 
Why the turmoil amid the success? The answer lies partly in Apple's history. A company with remarkable products and inspired engineers, Apple historically offered premium products at premium prices, yielding one of the highest profit margins in the industry. But by late 1990, Apple was in a bind. Its U.S. market share had plummeted to 9%, down from a high of 15% in 1987. Fast-paced sales in Europe and Japan kept the company's overall profits from dipping. But developers, the press, and customers were hounding Apple to offer more affordable options. The resultant low-cost Macintoshes were not so much an inspired vision as a reaction to market demand. Apple was clearly unprepared for the success of the new machines. Sales far exceeded the company's projections. By November 1990, Apple had back orders for $525 million worth of computers. Those accelerated sales for the low-cost machines meant lower profit margins. Net income increased, while profits plummeted. Problems that have languished beneath the surface, insufficient manufacturing capacity, high marketing costs, trouble with sales channels, and a lack of key products, have become glaringly obvious. To deal with these new dynamics, Apple is attempting to transform from a vendor of low-volume, high-profit products to one of high-volume, low-profit products. But does Apple have the vision and ability to adapt? Cost Consciousness the heart of Apple's current woes lies with its falling profit margins. Traditionally, Apple has fared extraordinarily well against its competition. While IBM PC clone manufacturers such as Compaq survive with profit margins of little more than 40%, and second-tier companies such as Dell run lean on profit margins of 30% or less, Apple has enjoyed profit margins as high as 53%. The days of averaging 50% gross margins are gone, says Joseph A. Graziano, Apple's chief financial officer. Apple publicly states a drop to the low 40% range, but the classic's 30% margin most likely brings the real average down to 35% or less. As profit margins drop, Apple must become increasingly cost-conscious. Operating costs in the second quarter of 1991 accounted for an overwhelming 37% of Apple's revenues. Besides cutting employees from the payroll, Apple is slashing budgets for travel, conferences, and bonuses. Research and development projects are being curtailed. Lavish product introductions and glitzy promotions must also be scaled back. In 1990, Apple spent a whopping $750 marketing each Macintosh it sold. That's almost the retail price of the classic. Apple hopes to reduce marketing costs by introducing products in batches, much as it did with the low-cost trio. But some products scheduled for introduction in late 1991 are already slipping into 1992 and beyond. Product introductions are increasingly plagued with costly missteps, changes, and delays. The long-rumored 68040-based workstation is yet to be seen, and no one at Apple will commit to a ship date for a laptop, even though one has been promised by the end of the year. Plans for a Sony-manufactured CD-ROM player have been delayed. The company can't afford to make marketing mistakes, either. Although the LC was introduced at the same time as the Classic and 2SI, 
it didn't ship until three months later, a delay that hurt its sales. Compounding the problem, customers didn't understand why they should purchase the LC over the 2SI. As a result of these missteps, U.S. sales of the LC are well below Apple's projections. With a huge inventory of unsold LCs sitting in warehouses, Apple was forced to relaunch the product with a costly advertising campaign. Oiling the supply chain Apple must also increase its manufacturing capacity and improve its forecasting abilities. During the first two quarters of fiscal 1991, classics were on back order. We were going into a recessionary period with products that were nice but not revolutionary, says G. Frederick Forsyth, Apple's general manager for Macintosh hardware and worldwide manufacturing. We underestimated how well received they would be. To eliminate the back orders, Apple ran its manufacturing plant in Singapore 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Plants in Fremont, California and Cork, Ireland were already running at capacity. Although Apple had experience with high-volume manufacturing on the Apple II production line in Singapore, the company was taking a huge risk. But the production system held. So well, in fact, that Apple ended up with a surplus of classics as it headed into its third fiscal quarter, a time when sales are traditionally flat. Still, the risk they had taken threw a scare into Apple. In a record 90 days, Apple's board of directors approved the purchase of a new U.S. manufacturing site. The company scouted locations and it signed a contract for a 400,000-square-foot plant in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Once the new plant is running, sometime in early 1992, Apple can manufacture its U.S.-bound, low-cost products there rather than in its Fremont plant, where operational costs are higher. Why couldn't the company predict the classic's popularity? After all, shortly before the rollout, Apple had initiated a special European promotion. SEs were offered to the German, Danish, and Spanish education markets for about 1,500 US dollars. And the machines sold like the proverbial hotcakes. Apple desperately needs to refine its understanding of its customer base. Dealers beware. Macintoshes have generally been sold through Apple-authorized dealers, but the overhead associated with supporting the dealer channel has become too costly. Apple was one of the founders of the retail sales concept for personal computers, says Graziano. We did it because the traditional model of selling mainframe products was too expensive. The irony is that over the years, our model has become as expensive as theirs. Apple has changed its authorization requirements and sales quotas for dealers at least three times in the last few years. The strategies have not worked. Instead, dealers are confused and frustrated. Recessionary times haven't helped either. In the last two years, the number of Apple dealers in the United States has dropped from 2,000 to slightly more than 1,500. In 1990, Apple demanded that dealers meet a $350,000 minimum sales quota. This move cut sales outlets throughout the rural United States. Scully says that Apple will not abandon the retail channel. Still, 
the company is openly looking for new ways to sell the low-cost Macintoshes. Superstores, large warehouse-style stores that cater to knowledgeable computer buyers, are one option. Unlike authorized dealers, superstores operate on low overhead and offer little in the way of customer handholding. Apple has been quietly experimenting with selling Macintoshes through two microcenter superstores, one in Columbus, Ohio, and one in Atlanta, for several months. In early June, Apple announced that it had struck a more substantial deal with CompUSA, a superstore chain with 20 outlets in the United States, to sell the low cost Macintoshes and Apple's personal printers. More announcements will surely follow. Of the 200 retail outlets Apple may add this year, half could be superstores. Superstores, however, could be potential landmines for Apple. In order to successfully sell products through mass merchandisers, Apple must ensure product availability, something it was unable to do with the classic at first, and it has to ensure product demand, something it could not do with the LC. Apple risks alienating its dealers potentially causing much damage in international markets where dealers are traditionally very important. I'm a fanatic about supporting our resellers, says Ian Diary, president of Apple Pacific. I would hate to add in volume merchandisers without planning it with the resellers. While superstores may help Apple distribute low-cost products, they won't help Apple raise sales to corporations. Therefore, Apple has reached an agreement with CompuCom that allows the chain to sell not only Apple's entire product line to corporations, but also installation, training, and support services. Even if the superstores and the unbundling of services are a success, they are not a long-term solution. Both technology and the buying habits of customers are changing rapidly. The channels are not static, says Robert L. Puet, president of Apple USA. Superstores are a 1991-1992 phenomena. Apple's challenge is to anticipate the changes and wisely prepare for them. Pushing the Product Envelope At the same time that Apple is attempting to expand its manufacturing capacity and guarantee distribution for its product lineup, the company plans to accelerate new product development. The schedule calls for new products every eight months. Apple's real challenge will be to produce technologically advanced products on time and to fill in the gaps in its current product line. Some product decisions will be easy. A faster version of the Classic is slated for this October and should only take a few months to ship. Other product decisions will not be so easy. How will Apple configure its risk machine, currently slated for 1992? Whose chip should the company use? What type of imaging model should replace the aging quick-draw? Should Apple invest in non-Mac consumer items? Apple is working on a pen-based system, but in-house fighting over product design already threatens the timeliness of its introduction. And then there's the laptop question. The most important product for Apple's financial health is one we don't even have out yet, the laptop, says Graziano. Sales for laptops had already topped $7.5 billion by early 1991. Because they come in one package, 
require little or no configuration, and need little after-sale support, laptop computers appeal to mass merchandisers. Strategic Alliances Apple has a reputation as a company determined to remain self-sufficient. But if product development is to follow Apple's proposed schedule, the company must build alliances. Rumors, which Apple neither confirms nor denies, abound that the company is talking to IBM about using its rival's risk chip in a workstation. Other, more long-standing rumors say that Apple is working with Sony to produce a laptop. Whether Apple can successfully negotiate with either company remains to be seen. IBM and Apple have been heated rivals for too long, and Apple's business with large Japanese conglomerates has been restricted to the purchase of components. Perhaps hedging its bets, Apple is considering risk chips from Motorola, Hewlett-Packard, and Acorn, as well as custom silicon solutions. As for the alliance with Sony, Scully claims that Apple is designing several laptops by itself. On other fronts, Apple has begun aggressively licensing AppleTalk and its data access language to third-party developers, thereby leveraging its research and development efforts. The company has also spearheaded an effort to petition the FCC to reserve a portion of the radio broadcast spectrum for data communication. Apple's system software group pushed to join a consortium composed of the major computer vendors promoting a universal standard for encoding text. All of these efforts could benefit the entire industry. In spite of such bold moves, Apple still carries vestiges of its traditional snobbery about proprietary technology. A much ballyhooed alliance between Digital Equipment Corporation and Apple three and a half years ago has yet to yield any real connectivity solutions. Apple's numerous lawsuits will hinder its efforts to work with other companies. A botched deal with Hewlett-Packard may have cost the company market share in the printer realm. We formed a partnership to produce a printer, says John P. Moon, Apple's vice president of imaging products. That lasted until we sued them. There went two years of work down the drain. Apple finally released the Style Writer early this year, but Hewlett-Packard had already shipped its version of the contested printer, the hot-selling Desk Writer. In another aborted exchange of technology, Apple announced last year that it would work with Microsoft to support TrueImage, a clone of Adobe PostScript, the language Apple uses in its printers. Apple and Adobe's partnership subsequently split, but when the alliance with Microsoft came to nothing, Apple renewed its partnership with Adobe. A new Apple All these pressures, the decreased profits, the manufacturing and distribution problems, and the need to nurture strategic alliances, are taking their toll. Apple's reorganization broke the company into smaller groups in an attempt to facilitate accountability for expenditures and deadlines. Michael H. Spindler, President and Chief Operating Officer, now controls Apple USA, Apple Europe, Apple Pacific, and worldwide manufacturing. In addition, he heads three new groups, Macintosh Hardware, Macintosh Software, and Enterprise Systems, a group devoted to guaranteeing that Macintoshes can connect to other systems. 
John Scully has taken on the role of Chief Technology Officer, heading up the Advanced Technology Group, as well as two new groups, Object-Based Systems and Consumer Products. John trusts Michael to run the operations, says Apple's General Manager, Forsyth. John can explore other areas and help define Apple's future. That's hard to do when you have operational problems to pull you back in. The new Apple may be short on such visionaries as Steve Jobs and Jean-Louis Gasset, but its managers and pragmatists promise to implement standard business controls that will rein in spending and speed up production. For instance, Spindler now holds monthly business forecasting and manufacturing planning meetings, meetings that were never held regularly before. Some people bemoan the structure as a sign of Apple's creeping stodginess. Others believe Apple could stand a bit more control. John Moon has a favorite analogy. Apple, he says, is like a football team where the players won't play their positions. Amusing and typical of the Apple myth. But does Moon like playing a game in which the rules go unheeded? Well, he says, it gets in the way sometimes. More than just get in the way, Apple's non-traditional structure and frequent reorganizations sometimes mean serious financial blunders. Take, for instance, one of Apple's biggest goofs, the Macintosh Portable. At one crucial point during the portable's design, the marketing department was too busy reorganizing to offer feedback. One of the engineers forgot to add a door to access the battery. No one caught the mistake until late in the process, and the portable was set back nine months. Shaking Down for the most part, the setup under Spindler makes sense. Apple has reduced redundancy in some operations and has moved projects to the areas where they fit best. The reorg is good because previously the Apple Talk drivers and server software were all part of the networking group, says Dave Feldman, a software engineer on the System 7 team. Now the server software is part of the system group where it belongs. But the Enterprise Systems Group, which is important for Apple's success in large businesses, still lacks a leader and a clear plan for products. Apple's communications products have a reputation for being weak, not working properly, and being consistently late to market. Many people fault Gersharan Sadu, the head of the Networking and Communications Group, which was disbanded and folded into the Enterprise Systems Group during the recent reorganization. The people who work for Sadu think he's incredibly good, incredibly bright. They think he's right for the job, says Hazel Holby, a former employee who worked at Apple for nine years. But it's hard to get products out through him. It's the not-invented-here syndrome. Many of the engineering groups are also in disarray. Working teams have been split up. Managers are scrambling to line up the best people for new teams, and some jobs are in jeopardy. With Apple's heavy product introduction plans for late 1991, engineering can't afford to lose much working time to this sort of turmoil. Scully's groups are faring worse. Even the Advanced Technology Group, ATG, is succumbing to cuts, downsizing, and changing goals. Normally, Apple's research and development groups are spared hardships. The consumer group is only vaguely defined. 
Apple originally thought it would introduce the first of its consumer products in late 1991 or early 1992. But the low-cost Macintoshes proved that Apple is not ready to become a consumer company with profit margins of only 5 to 8 percent and readily available products that are attractive to mass merchandisers. In addition, consumer products must be introduced at a much faster pace than Apple is accustomed to. Sony introduces five products a day, says Scully. If we do five a quarter, we are having an outstanding quarter. Scully also controls two spin-off companies, General Magic and Claris Corporation. General Magic is led by two of the most innovative members of the original Macintosh team, Andy Hertzfeld and Bill Atkinson. The duo is rumored to be working on either a pen-based computer or a programmable software interface for consumer products. Apple funded the group, and Scully sits on its board of directors, but the company is quite separate from the rest of Apple. We want to isolate entrepreneurs, says Forsyth. We don't expect revenue from them, but ideas. The other part of the organization has to deliver predictably, boringly good products. Claris, with its successful application products, is a more curious case. Originally, Apple planned to spin off the company to appease developers who felt threatened by the competition. Apple changed its mind, apparently after only a couple of days of deliberation. Most people speculated that the reintegration of Claris was a knee-jerk reaction to the fear that Microsoft Windows popularity would lure application developers away from Apple with Claris leading the way. The toll that rapid decision is taking is only now becoming apparent. Seven of the nine executives who originally formed Claris have either left or are planning to leave the company. According to one insider, Claris's president and former head of Apple's venture capital group, Dan Eilers, is standing up to Scully in an effort to run Claris as he sees fit. Along with the infighting, Plans are underway to cut paint, forms, and CAD products from Claris's line, and product development has ground to a halt. Claris is at a complete standstill. Can Apple adapt? Apple is no stranger to market fluctuations, rapid growth, and leadership turnover. The layoffs, restructuring, and cost-cutting efforts may well help Apple to cope with its current crises. This time, however, Apple may be trying to do too many things at once. The company touts its self-sufficient creativity, but it lags behind in major markets such as laptops, workstations, and now pen-based computers. Is the company stretching itself too far? Like IBM, Apple competes in hardware and networking solutions. Like Microsoft, Apple competes in system software and applications. And like Sun, Apple competes in development tools and Unix systems. To grapple with this multiple personality, Apple is still reorganizing to clarify divisions and make internal communication and planning more effective. Yet much of the reorganization is not clearly thought out. Engineering is in disarray, and Apple's ability to resolve its many problems is being hampered. Scully seems to realize that Apple needs a more practical organization and a focused plan, but just how clear Apple's future is to him, no one seems to know.
Clearly, Apple has a tough few years ahead. If the company can throw away old perceptions, catch up on the technology, and fix its organizational problems, it can buy the time it needs to come up with a clear plan for the next decade. If not, Apple may well become a bit player in tomorrow's technology market. Sidebar. The $16.7 million man. Is he worth it? On the sixth floor of De Anza 7, a modern tinted glass building in Cupertino, sits a typical Silicon Valley high-tech office. It's small and has no windows that open to the outside. The decor is clean and modern. Shelves and desktops are a chic black, and bright pink folders add hints of color. A round wooden table with red leather chairs dominates the middle of the room. Several Macintoshes, including one custom-painted to look as though it were made of marble, take up most of the desk space. In the background are aquarium sounds, which turn out to be the electronic gurgling of fish moving across a computer screen. Welcome to the world of John Scully, the man who's been at the helm of Apple as it has grown from $982.8 million to $5.6 billion in revenues. He's done well and deserves to be rewarded. But many people are questioning the size of the reward especially in light of Apple's recent raft of financial problems and layoffs. One of the highest-paid CEOs in America, Scully reportedly made $16.7 million last year in salary, stocks, and bonuses. A soft-spoken man with a casual, easy manner, Scully doesn't come across as a dynamic leader. Analysts and the press are unimpressed with him. Employees criticize his salary and his growing inaccessibility. But some who work closely with Scully have a higher regard for him. Albert A. Eisenstadt, an executive vice president and Apple's secretary, who is often credited with serving as Apple's stabilizing force over the years, claims that Scully has brought a more orderly marketing perspective to Apple, as well as a genuine love for technology. Others, such as Bill Campbell, former head of Claris and current president of Go Corporation, became cynical about Scully's leadership over the years, complaining about his penchant for second-guessing his staff's decisions and changing his mind on decisions agreed upon long before. Still, many people credit Scully for forcing the hard, quick decisions that brought the low-cost Macintoshes out of the prototype stage and into the market. John should be given a lot of credit for things that work, says David C. Nagel, vice president of the Advanced Technology Group. He actually does more than he is credited for on the outside when it comes to making things work technically. But Scully frequently seems to lose his grasp of reality. He speaks of Apple's plans to introduce products in all major market areas by the year's end. Yet by mid-year, he was still creating breaks in the company's current organization and groping to define goals for Claris. At a time when Apple needs to work closely with third-party developers to create new products, Scully has aggravated a generally touchy situation. The low-cost Macintoshes have not helped developers sell products, and Apple continues to compete with developers by selling more of its own peripherals and software. When speaking in public now, such as at the developer conference in May, Scully's speech is halting and nervous. He seems uncertain. There's little he can do to stem the current hostility, 
Even though he cut his salary by 15%, most people deem the move too little, too late. Only by pulling Apple out of its current dilemma and coming up with a workable plan for the next few years can Scully redeem himself. And with the state Apple is in, that is a job worth $16.7 million. Epilogue The Washington Post reports there was a boardroom coup and a lawsuit four months before John Scully resigned in October 1993, two years after this article was published. Profits for that fiscal year totaled just $86 million. Michael Spindler succeeded Scully, but only lasted a few years. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2017. Gil Emilio succeeded Spindler in 1996, and, related or not, it was under Emilio that Apple's troubles peaked. Independent Macintosh dealers are a distant memory now. At least here in Canada, Apple retail went on to snuff out the vast majority of independent Macintosh dealers by the mid-2010s. A little lazy Google work tells me Apple's net profit margin in 2019 is 21.5%, a number I find difficult to believe for a company that wants $720 Canadian for a 32GB factory RAM upgrade. The tumultuous pen computing project eventually yielded the Newton message pad. For more on that story, look up the documentary called Love Notes to Newton. A paltry $12 will get you a copy of this beautifully crafted work, jam-packed full of juicy details and stories. Deck Pathworks shipped in late 1991, allowing Macintoshes to speak to file, mail, and print services running on Vaxxon for a few years before Deck itself faded into obscurity. Apple's wireless networking research was part of its activities in the then-little-known IEEE 802.11 working group, better known to us now as the Wi-Fi standard, so we all know how that one ended. The consortium focused on text encoding yielded what we now know as Unicode, version 1.0 of which was published around the same time as this article. By 1999, Apple had finally gotten a grip on its marketing and inventory situation. How long this lasted, I cannot be sure, as this is the only time they ever publicly bragged about inventory management. In terms of inventory, I just want to highlight this. I know this isn't something that maybe most of you care too much about, but we care deeply about it because our inventory costs more than yours. We have to manage it really well because this stuff gets obsolete just sitting on the shelf. And we have done, I think, a terrific job in doing that over the last several quarters. And as you see, in the last three quarters, we've gotten down to these are days of inventory leaving each quarter. So we used to have 30, and we literally last left, left last quarter with one day of inventory. And during the last three quarters, we have beat Dell. And Apple has become... <laughs> Apple has become, in many ways, the most operationally excellent company now in this industry. Thanks again for tuning in to Mac Folklore Radio. I appreciate all the lovely reviews you've left on the iTunes podcast directory. If you have a story request, or you'd just like to talk about old Mac stuff, you can reach me by email at Derek, that's D-E-R-E-K, at MacFolkloreRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Uh.